You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So I want to ask you how your week was, but before we do that, is it Fanuc or Fanuc? <laughs> this is going to come up later, so let's just cross it off right now. So I asked a guy at a trade show, I said, hey, because I was looking at robots. Now, was that guy wearing a yellow sport coat? He was wearing something yellow okay. with red accents, if okay. I remember correctly. Yeah. And he wasn't a Sandvik rep. So I said, is it, dude, help me settle this. Is it Fanuc or is it Fanuc? And he said, it depends on which thread of our business you're talking about. Oh, so no. robots are Fanuc robots. But going back to the 80s, when our controls or our, yeah, our controls were in all the CNCs, it was Fanuc. And so that's why you have an entire generation of people saying Fanuc and then another more modern robotic generation saying Fanuc. And then you throw in like another generation or a decade and now it's all blurred where you and I neither have Fanuc, Fanuc robots or controls and we're debating whether it's Fanuc or Fanuc. It's just one of those things. It's like, did people say, yeah, potato, potato, tomato, tomato, fanic, fanuc. Let's call the whole thing off. Yeah. You know what's funny is, yes, I think most people would say, yeah, it's a potato, potato. But I still feel self-conscious thinking, what ecosystem is this person living in where I have to use fanic oh, no. or fanuc? Oh, <laughs> so. no. It becomes a machinist shibboleth. <laughs> Well, if I'm talking to a robot guy, I'm going to have to think, okay, we're talking about his robots. Therefore, it is everything I'm going to say is Fanuc. Fanuc. Or is it Fanuc? No, it's Fanuc. And then I doubt Fanuc. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just don't want to sound ignorant, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So yeah. how'd your week go, Jay? Yeah, so super busy. Typically, that's not my go-to response. Uh, of course, there's always something to do, something to Normally work on. There's always something busy. It's crazy. There's crazy busy, but this wasn't crazy busy. This was probably, I'd say, crazy occupied mm -hmm. because we got a new CMM. We got a Zeiss CMM that was commissioned on Friday. And so we were doing a little bit of Friday afternoon, which is a terrible time to go through training on anything. People are tired and checked out at the very end of the week. Are tired, you sure? you're done. You just did battle for a week with other things that aren't working. So trying to wrap my mind around that. But I did binge watch Saturday, Sunday, a bunch of videos on YouTube. Shout out to a guy. His YouTube channel is R Odell, R dot Odell. And he's a professor at probably some like, probably a community college in New York, if I remember correctly. I'm, I want to say Rochester, which is your neck of the woods, but sure. so good. Like such a, like teachers, oh, good teachers. I've run across this guy before. It's been a yeah. while. He's a metrology guy. He's great. Interesting. Yeah. So that guy binge watches stuff and he's got like a 2223 lesson playlist on Zeiss, Duramax, Calypso, just everything, like how to turn it on, which yeah. is such a gold mine. Like I want to send this guy money because <laughs> it was, it, it did so much for me personally. Like I could watch it. I could rewatch it. I could forward it. I could forward it with a timestamp. I could QR code those timestamps. And then, so we come back on Monday and originally it was going to be like four of us training on the CMM, but you know, I made the executive decision. It was just going to be one of my machine guys, Alex. He's like our head 
machine uh, mills guy and myself kind of poking my head in and out, taking notes, those types of things, filling in. I would have had multiple guys training, but after seeing that playlist on Google, I thought there is no way that we are going to try and absorb all of this from a very uh, politely spoken mid teacher, in-person teacher. He's good. He's the technician, a third-party technician, but not the heart of a teacher, the heart of a technician, a good technician. That's why I went with him. Yep. So I told Alex, he's like, man, this guy keeps yelling at me like I should know it by now. I said, yep, that's not a great teacher. I said, just smile, grin, bear it, and then watch my uh, signal message because I'm going to send you a playlist. And it, like, I, I was able to come in the first day. So today's Thursday, the first day that I had a, a gap of time to catch up on my Monday and Tuesday, which I was training. I went in there and I was talking with my, my prototype guy, John, and he handed me a part and he said, we need to check the flatness, the, the board diameter spacing. <laughs> I, I can do that. And I went and within under an hour, I took a fairly simple part and manually wrote a program on the CMM and was able to qualify it. And it was such a great feeling because I didn't need any help. I, I did go back to the videos, which is what you should be doing. Yep. That's why we just do a ton of videos around here because I don't want to call the technician slash teacher and say, hey, I can't do this. How did you say I can do that again? It's just inefficient. And yes, I'm the owner and I pay him to answer my questions, but it's still, there's a human factor there. You don't want to be an idiot. Yeah, it's, it's never good to burn up somebody's goodwill. There's an enormous amount, like we had from 2015 through tw early 23, we had the same install tech from Yamazin, same guy brought in and set up all five of our machines. And then he recently moved out of state mm -hmm. and he and I have kept in touch since his move. And he's my go-to person for basic questions, mm. because if there's some simple thing that I'm missing, that's not super technical. He likes me. I like him. Shout out to Danny. He's a great dude. And if I can ask him a quick question, like, hey, Danny, this thing you showed me a year or two ago, I can't find it again. Where was that? Mm -hmm. And it takes him 10 seconds to just quickly text me a reply, even though I'm no longer in his territory. Sure. And it's way easier than trying to talk to the new rep in our area who I barely know mm -hmm. and don't have any goodwill or history with. Because when I ask Danny a question, Danny knows our shop. He's been here so many times. He's answered tons of questions. He's helped us solve lots of problems before. He just, he knows us. He appreciates us. We're a really low maintenance client for a mm -hmm. company like Yamazin. The only time we've ever had a serious problem was when dumb me. <sighs> we don't have to talk about that. Needed a replacement spindle. We'll just yes, leave it. We don't at need to talk about that. <laughs> spindle. And other than that, like we do pretty regular preventative maintenance on our machines. We're not running them super hard. We clean them every day. Yeah. And our machines are just, they just, they're just clean. They run. Yeah. There's not a big deal. Yeah. And. But the goodwill part of it. The goodwill part of it's huge. Yeah. And having somebody who I like and who likes me, mm -hmm. I, I think, who is willing to answer quick off the cuff questions. But what I don't do is text him and say, Hey, Danny, I don't remember anything about this topic. Could you give me a call for an hour and explain all of it? Yep. From soup to nuts. Yep. Which that phrase never made sense to me. Soup to nuts. Like you go to a restaurant, you don't start with soup and finish the meal with a bowl of nuts. 
I don't understand that phrase. Weird language quirks. Some anyway, culture might. Just gonna some culture that. might. Yeah. Yeah. And so going to Danny for simple questions, there are other people. I don't have a Rolodex, but they're in my mental Rolodex. If I have really arcane technical questions mm-hmm. about the underlying architecture of the brother control and the ladder logic and various things, I have one or two people that I email or text about that and they're not Danny. Mm. But if I have basic, hey, I've got an operator at the machine who has a question about how to do this thing and I've seen it before, but I can't find it. Mm-hmm. But I did my due diligence and I went and looked for it before I texted you mm-hmm. to say, hey, I've looked here, I've looked here and I've looked here and I think the thing is called this, but I can't find it. Can you help me find that? Yes. That way he doesn't have to do all the legwork. He can just say, it's under this soft key, option seven, scroll down to the very bottom. It's right there. Yes. That's so great. That I, kind of relationship I, is so worth cultivating. So I've given it a lot of thought because I'm always trying to think, don't do the work, set up the process and document it so that anyone else can do the work. So I'm thinking, mm-hmm. what would be the process if I had a question? Is it immediately pick up the phone and call this guy? No, the, the first thing is go through all the videos, look through everything. It's things that aren't answered in those videos. And so I didn't call him. I scrubbed through a few videos and then now I'm getting into like second and third, fourth channels that talk about CMM stuff. And so we're, I'm starting to put together a different playlist and we're just going to have just a, a, a huge page. It'll live online. We'll, we can print it. It'll have QR codes, hot links, all that stuff. Basically like a knowledge base. Yep. And then if nothing fits, then we call the technician, get the hand holding, that type of thing. But no, it, it was one of those things that made me at the end of it really appreciate the push we've made over the years of documenting every process and putting it on video or paper or like a traveler sheet or a setup sheet. Because going and asking someone, we can get into this much, much later, but we, there's uh, like in our community. Company communications policy, there's three forms of communication. And that what we call the face-to-face, that's the worst, most inefficient type of communication we do in the company. So we're going to steer away from that. We do want to push it to the other two forms. But uh, when you say face-to-face, what is included in face-to-face? Well, I can get into it. Okay. So three forms of communication, face-to-face, like you and I exchanging information. It could be training. It could be planning. could be brainstorming. That's good. But it's Does expensive. that include Zoom and FaceTime? Yes. Okay. Okay. It's anything that is synchronous, two-way. It's any, yes, it's synchronous and it's exchanging of information between each other. Okay. The next one is shoulder to shoulder where we're now it's still two people, but we're facing a third object. Like we might be looking into a machine, looking at an assembly, looking at a design. We're shoulder to shoulder. We're, we're collaborating. That would not fall into training. So training would be considered face-to-face. I'm one human, you're one human. We are exchanging information shoulder to shoulders. We both know it. Now what principles, what ideas can we have focused on this part or this design or this process? And the third is face-to-screen. So once, the, uh, like you and I, we've discussed a design, then we're, you and I are looking in a machine and we're seeing not just what to make, but how to make it. Now we document that put it online, video, PDF, any type of diagram. Now it's face to screen, which only requires one person. So that way you're not bothering that higher paid, busier person. Hey, how did we make that part again? What's the design intent on this? 
Yep. So it decreases the ascending levels of complexity of communication. Makes sense. Yeah. For me, the gold standard is communication that's asynchronous. And whether that's a voice memo, a printout, a laminated card, a QR code that takes you to YouTube, whatever it is, if the person who needs the information for me that I think of it in line with the answer should be found in the place you ask the question. That's right. Lean right there. And that idea that the answer should be found at the time you ask the question mm -hmm. is another layer to that because it's one thing to know, I know who has the answer. Unfortunately, it's 9 p.m. And that person will not be available until 9 a.m. And then it'll be entirely depending on their schedule. Maybe mm -hmm. they're traveling tomorrow and they're not available at all. Right. If the answers can be asynchronous and face to screen, where I can go find my own thing. Now, the trade-off is you can have too much information. And this is the signal to noise ratio problem, which is at a certain point, if you document, this is the James Carville thing. If you say 10 things, you've said nothing. Mm -hmm. If you document everything, there's some tipping point where the documentation utility falls off a cliff because there's so much of it that going to find it is more work and more hassle than going and bugging the expert person. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so there, I, I find in myself two reasons why I don't document things. And I am, I'm getting better all the time at documenting things. And for us, one of the most effective forms of customer service that I've found so far is if a customer emails in and they have a problem and it involves multiple individual issues, even if we have a resource for each of those things individually, but they have a confluence of three or four particular things that would each require their own resource, taking 60 seconds and recording a unique YouTube video to them by name, uploading it to an unlisted video. And then sending them the link and saying, hey, Mike, here's my answer to your question. Mm -hmm. That's face to screen and it's asynchronous. I'm not calling them. I'm not asking them to hop on the phone with me right now. I'm doing what I would do if I were talking to them face to face, essentially. Yeah. But I'm doing it on my time when it works for me and giving it to them on their time when it works for them. And then they can watch it as many times as they want. They watch mm -hmm. that one minute clip a hundred times. It cost me 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. That is super efficient. Yes. And it's like, well, but I have to shoot the video and then upload it. It's not complicated. Right. To so just throw your iPhone in a holder, talk to the camera for 60 seconds, and then open the YouTube app, upload. You don't even need to title it. It's unlisted. Right. A week later, you can delete it. It's gone forever. The customer's question is answered. You don't have to keep it. It's just, it's a way of giving them a thing that you clearly created uniquely for them. It's really valuable. They can reuse it as many times as they need, and you can show them and tell them at the same time. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Yeah, that's huge. So that's why we're so big on our communication app signal. It's because, for example, I'm in my office right now. It's business hours. You can't really see it, but there's a do not disturb sign. And I, for the most part, I have a closed door policy. I know that's not popular. I think maybe in the 80s, oh, open door, CEOs on the shop floor. No, no, no. We do brain work around here. 
I absolutely need to focus. I want everyone else to focus. We have do not disturb vests if a guy's on the shop floor and they're focused. And yeah, you are not respecting of your coworkers' time if you are always bugging them. Hey, where's the calipers? Hey, where's this? Did you see the scores last night? That type of thing. That's That goes face to screen. And the face to screen is that asynchronous thing. It's not urgent most of the time. It's not important. If it is important, then you go face to face. And those have very defined times when that happens. Morning meetings, breaks, if a guy is, goes on non do not disturb mode, that type of thing. So yep. yeah, there's so much more we could say about that. Anyway, my big takeaway was that I've greatly appreciated like the extra activities we put into having in-house training materials that there's a value add there that's yeah. a big payoff. And most people don't do that because it's too hard to create the content to begin with, but that content lives in perpetuity, especially if it's digital and hosted by a third party like YouTube. That has massive steam power, which is a huge value to the company. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Overall, your Zeiss CMM, mm -hmm. what do you love about it? What do you not like about it? Well, I love the brand, first of all. You can't really, like Zeiss for the most part is kind of like the, the gold standard for CMMs. I opted to go with a used one and I opted to not go with Zeiss service because I, that's just a, it's a conflict of interest when the technician says, oh yeah, this machine's no good. Let me have the sales guy give you a call. So I went with a third party technician and he said, by the time it got here, he said, there's a few things that scare me when I go to see a used machine. That's the first thing. Something's crashed, broken, bent, inaccurate, loose. Mm -hmm. This machine's good. Then it gets picked up, delivered, put on your floor. There's another opportunity to be scared. Same thing. Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying riggers drop things? Uh, I've never heard of such a thing. Well, anyway, continue. Okay. All right. Well, they're called <laughs> riggers. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> so, so these guys, <laughs> there is a story there. They did bump it hard. Oops. Oh. I went with the lowest bidder. I don't know what to tell you. That's on me. Anyways. <laughs> Costs of savings. Yes. Yes. That's so anyways, he said, okay, for your point number two, it's not an issue. And he showed me the reports and he said, this is better than a brand new Zeiss CMM day one. So you got a bargain here. It's a really clean, really good machine. And we've tuned it. So we do need to build a, a climate controlled room around it. Okay. And then he'll come back when that's done and it's been living in that environment at that temperature for a while, call it four weeks or so. Then he'll do a final calibration, then an annual calibration. But I just love like the Zeiss stuff. So the software is Calypso, which quite honestly, like you were asking me offline, how does it look? You know, what it's, it's not intuitive. It, most of the things like I, I know I need to draw a line. Now there's a 3D line, a 2D line, an inferred line. It's just, there's so many ways to screw it up. And I don't feel like there's good digital communication. Like when you mouse over and there's a tool tip, half of the time it's ambiguous. The other time, like my guy, Alex, he's like, there was a tool tip that showed up. Why is it not showing up when I mouse over? And I said, well, Alex, you got to realize that when you click on this box, it opens another window, but that is a literal window. The software, like your Windows OS thinks that you're mousing over something behind that window. You need to click on that new active window anywhere in a blank space. Then it knows that your focus is on that window. The tooltips will show up. 
So it's that type of stuff that we're working through. And so Fusion doesn't have those issues. Like there's lots of people, including myself, that have been frustrated so painfully over the years with Fusion. But honestly, I mentioned to you in the chat, Calypso makes Fusion, it's like the difference between iOS and DOS 3.1. It's just, it's such a stark difference. It's like a Fanuc or Fanuc control versus a Datron touchscreen control. So yep. Yeah, but it's a learning curve and we just need to write a good program for each of our components. That's the goal. And then just keep running those. It's kind of like our big MX nine axis machine. I tell my guy, hey, we're only going to make 20 components on this. You just need to put in the hard work and make those bulletproof 20 programs and then you're done. No reposting. So. So I had a big week so far. Mm -hmm. This was my first week with my new CNC machinist who I hired. He left another shop locally. I think I mentioned this on the previous episode. And he came in on Monday. We had his workstation, dual monitors, everything all set up for him, ready to rock. We had to get some licensing stuff, keys and various things and make sure he had his new company email all hooked up and linked to Dropbox and all the different first day stuff. But he and I have already worked through a bunch of our workflow stuff, have figured out conceptually how we want to manage more team shared stuff like where's our definitive post processor going to be and how we're going to manage the tool libraries now that we've got multiple people playing mm-hmm. in the space. And it is such a relief to have somebody experienced who is not phased by any of the particular questions I have or ideas I have. And I can also ask, how did you do this before? Yeah. In your previous shop, how did you do it? And what were the pros and cons of that approach? Yeah. Maybe a pro was it was super flexible, but a con was you could lose track of things and accidentally run an old revision. Or maybe it was kind of unintuitive and there were a lot of steps, but it was absolutely bulletproof. When you got to the end, you knew for sure this works. And so working through all that stuff and we set up, we rearranged our small office space so that he is right next to me. We're at, at right angles. So We're not looking at each other's monitors, but we can sit there and easily talk. And if I want to turn my monitor, I can turn my monitor around on its stand Mm -hmm. and he can see what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And a number of times we're like, hey, Chris, just wanted to show you real quick how I'm doing this. Spin the monitor. He goes, okay, that makes sense. You got that there and that there. And oh yeah, okay. And you're using a sketch to drive that toolpath. Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I have been behaving like a fire hydrant all week where somebody showed up with a wrench and just cranked me open and I'm just pouring out absurd amounts of information that have been pent up in my brain. And he seems to be taking it in good humor, which is great, and asking very simple and direct questions to make sure he clearly understands what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really helpful. I'm super excited about it. Would would you say- Really quick, would you say that this is like your first high octane, like rock star machinist you've ever employed? This is the, oh, yes, okay. absolutely. So we, we have currently two CNC operators separate from Chris. And one of them had no prior CNC experience, had never stood in front of one. We trained him from the ground up. And the other guy had worked in another machine shop for a couple of years, was not programming. And that was a shop that didn't have any probes didn't have any tool setters, did lots of hand editing at machines and had this constant push-pull tug of war 
between day shift and night shift mm. where day shift guys would write the programs, night shift guys would edit the programs, day shift guys would undo the edits, night shift guys would redo the edits. And there was this, like everything, everything was being tinkered with yeah. at the machines, which meant every time a job recurred, there was no standardization. A job came back that hadn't been run in four months and you'd have to go back to the exact machine that job got run on the last time and hope that the program was still there with all the manual edits that had ended up in it by the end of the run because what had been posted out of CAM was nowhere near what had actually been the end result of the production run. So that younger machinist who I hired in 2020, he is learning to program. He's got a seat of fusion. He's been working on some basic fixture designs. We're not at the point where he is taking on any whole projects by himself. He's not doing mold designs from start to finish. He's just learning a lot of the ropes. He's been watching a lot of fusion tutorials. He does a ton of 3D printing. He's our go-to shop guy. Anytime somebody in the shop needs a little jig or widget or fixture or thing, catted and 3D printed, they go straight to him. Mm. And he's doing a very good job getting stuff quickly turned around and back out to the floor for them to use, which is excellent. But on any given day where we have a lot of CNC production demand, he's running a machine. He's not in front of a laptop. Mm -hmm. Chris, my new hire, is almost exclusively going to be programming and is not going to be spending much time in front of a machine except to get familiar with how our workflows work and how we design our fixtures because I want him to have a taste of that so that he understands as he is designing new fixturing how our current operators interact with the machines, interact with the work holding systems, interact with their workspace. And we have the advantage of having a lot of consistency because most of what we machine is thermoformed plastic parts. And regardless of their size, that means you've got consistent material, standardized cutters, standardized modes of work holding. So a lot of vacuum, a lot of embedded rare earth magnets for vibration dampening and things. And once you get a feel for that mode of work holding, Chris has never done vacuum work holding before. He came in, he's like, wow, you have vacuum work holding on everything. I'm like, oh yeah, man, if we can suck it down, we suck it down. Toe clamps, who wants them? If yeah. we can just lay it down and back it down, let's back it down. And what, what brand of vacuum work holding? We use a mix of primarily Pearson work holding. Okay, that's all. that's all. That, 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 we've that's all. We've got one mighty bite vac magic on one of our older machines. I just wanted to throw in a shameless second party plug there. That's all. Yeah, we have several generations of smart vac and a whole bunch of MPS bases and pallet systems. Great. And Sorry. they've been excellent. Big props. <laughs> Highly recommend. Owner's a there. great guy. There, we just paid for the podcast. Customer, customer service, sometimes a little hard to get a hold of, but everything else, fantastic. <laughs> it's mostly because they're on some weird time zone that's just like hours off from normal. Yeah, gosh. I have Actually, we have, we, we have one thing we've been dealing with recently where we are dealing with a company basically on the opposite side of the planet. Uh -huh. I get emails back from them between one and three in the morning. Yeah. And if I don't email them by 9 a.m., they're closed for the day. It's, <laughs> a, full, like, it's a full the, day of search. Yes. This yes. is the stupidest thing ever. Yeah. Either I need to be an insomniac mm -hmm. or you need to stay at work late, but this can't keep happening. I can't send you an email at 9.06 yes. and then realize I'm not going to hear back from you until 2.45 a.m. my time. This doesn't work. 
So I took a, an early morning call today from the UK and same thing. And then I sent messages to my team to help them place an order. And it's like, but hurry, put this on the top of your list. Cut the line. Hey guys, because, you got to order by 5 a.m. Yeah, <laughs> the pub opens. It's opening right now and it's happy time, happy hour. The global economy has just these weird physical geological wrinkles to it, which is somebody's got to be up at a non-optimal time for any of this synchronous communication to work. Right. Yeah. What's really weird to me is like our Friday is Australia's Saturday. And yeah. so we'll get a bunch of orders come in or questions or missed calls on Sunday, their Monday. It is what it is. Yeah. Okay. But I kind of distracted you with that shameless plug. Well, no, it, so we Chris, love our Pearson work holding stuff. And in, we're probably going to be in the fairly near future, going to be adding a road device to one of our machines. So we'll talk about oh, that. Do you have a rotary yet? No, looking at okay. a brother T200. Do you have a yes. recommendation other than that? No, we're tooling up to service the brother line. Like, okay. So for example, the last YouTube video that went live was our riser plate, which is, mm -hmm. it, I'm not trying to sell. It's just, I want every thing that we sell, almost every SKU on our site, we want a video to go alongside it. So that was just on the, the to-do list. But, you know, we started getting calls. Hey, does it work with the brother T200? Yes, we've made them in the past to be modified, and I think it's going to become a standard feature because it has a four-bolt pattern, not a two-bolt pattern, as Haas intended to have a rotary bolted in, in a single T-slot. And what does the four-bolt pattern get you? Uh, arguably rigidity, but so the Haas will, the bolt-down locations are parallel with the axis. So it's right yep, below the- in line. The, yeah, in line. So Brother spaces them out which I think is great. That's how it should yep. be. It's better design, if you ask me. Interestingly, I watched that video yep. and I'm looking at the riser going, that's cool. I need to put a rotary on an R650, which doesn't have T-slots. Oh. Oh. Yeah. My reaction exactly. Oh. I think I also was, was looking at the interesting Lang rail system that they uh -huh. announced recently. Oh. Uh, don't Which know is it. like you, you put a Lang quick adjust rail in a T-slot, it, it bolts into a series of nuts in a T-slot, mm -hmm. and then you can incrementally shift their vices with a single screw mm. along the length of that rail, and then you can quick change vices, but the really cool thing it gets you is the, oh, I've got a dead space in the middle in between two things that are in the T-slots and already indicated in and square, and I don't have a way to teleport T-nuts into the channels where I need them. The whole yeah. length system, you can drop things in from the top and then lock them. Nice. So you can have two vices and say, oh, you know, for this one job, I need a third mini vice in between these two. Sure. Just drop it in, lock it in. And that seemed like a really cool idea to me, but it, it still, it weirds me out that the 650 has pattern of threaded holes. Yeah. It's basically like a subplate. Sure. But the 450, which we have two of, has T-slots. I'm like, Guys, why is this so non-standard? Why the is six, one of these the six fifty? Now, does this the one with that rotates? Yes, yeah. the four fifty. The all the R series machines from Brother uh -huh. have twin tables, right? Okay. And so on the Speedios, the S series, which we have two of two S seven hundreds, the idea of putting a T two hundred rotary on there, they have fifteen by fifteen point six by like twenty seven and a half travels. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. not a huge table, not a ton of travels, smaller than a VF two, mm -hmm. and you really want to get that rotary 
out of your table space. Preserve yep. as much X as you possibly can mm-hmm. and put it on a riser. Grab as much Z as you can because brothers already have a pretty z- generous Z gap and you want to be able to use that under the rotary toward the table and spin your parts underneath. Yeah. But on the QT series, on all the R series machines, you have to keep everything within the footprint of the table. Otherwise, it crashes when you rotate. Yeah. You can't hang anything off. I actually bashed a <laughs> Pearson SmartVac into the sheet metal next to the table because I was trying to put it in a position as close to the edge of the table as possible. And instead of using a right angle air fitting, I used a straight air fitting. Okay. And so the hose projected out a little bit oh. and I caught the whole assembly when I first rotated it in. And thankfully, I hadn't torqued down the bolt. I had just hand stung it. So the whole SmartVac spun on its single mounting bolt and I didn't damage anything, but it was one of these dumb moments of like, oh yeah, that looks great. It's right by the edge, easy to get to. And then I hit pallet change and I went, oh, clunk, no. Is your pallet changer kind of like just a dumb mechanism that, okay, here I go, boss. And then it doesn't monitor load or anything like that. In this particular case, I don't think the load was very high. I don't know if load monitoring would have caught it, but no, yeah. the QT tables on my brother, as far as I know, you send them and they go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Same with our horizontal. I want to say it's either hydraulic or pneumatically actuated where it's just some solenoid somewhere in the control cabinet is turning on and it's rotating this thing. And if it goes, it goes, you could pinch an arm or a leg and it's not going to know. If he dies, he dies. Yeah. You should have been in the machine in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. That's not ideal. No. Dying in a machine. Well, yeah. Dying in a machine is no good, but just motion mechanisms that don't have feedback loops in them, that don't have any way of self-monitoring. Yeah. I understand that it adds a lot. It does add a lot of complexity. Yep. But the when you get into more and more complex and valuable machines, the potential cost of a small error that's unmonitored mm-hmm. can be six figures. Yeah. Okay. Great example there. Our UR10 robot, we have it. It's been making thousands and thousands of pallets over the years since 2018. Um, successfully deployed to make pallets. And and this is our pro pallets. And so at one point when we moved into this facility, Carlos, my engineer, and we had another guy, another engineer that worked here, they said, on, we had to do a DIY auto door on the VF2. And Carlos said, we should probably monitor that to see if the door was fully opened before we try and put a 25-pound piece of aluminum through that through opening. It. Man, that has saved us so many times for the inadvertent thing that's been unplugged or a solenoid going bad or chips building up where the door didn't fully open, that type of thing. And that is that there. Oh, so this is a lean term called GDOCA. And I just talked about that in my DSI speech. It is machinery that is semi-automated where it can monitor itself and it can do two things. It can either stop and fix the problem or it can just stop safely and alert, and alert the operator. So yeah, GDOCA, that's something, especially if a human has access to it, like an auto door, that needs to be monitored, load, all that stuff. But an enclosed, like an R650 double door or a Haas EC400 pallet change station, you kind of want a dumb thing on that and just find out if it fully closed. There's switches on both ends before it tries to push the next piece of equipment out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about, because we're trying to automate more and more. And automation is actually one of the last steps you want to do when you're creating processes. 
And the first thing you should do is make them safe. Premature automation affects lots of middle-aged machinists. I don't know. I've been binging on this Elon Musk stuff that he laid out, like what he did wrong with the Model 3, and they tried to automate first. We got to make a cheap car. Automation makes things cheap. Let's automate. And it just stalled production. And it really crushed them, quite frankly, in his words. And then they had to be making Model 3s and tents in the Fremont factory parking lot, that type of thing, by hand, by the way. We've learned those same hard lessons, and now it's like, okay, actually, I have a UR5 robot that's on eBay right now. I'm just trying to get as much money back from it as possible because we bought it for a project that never materialized. It's only because we bought better machinery. We were going to have it load our dumb two-axis lathe, just pins, and pins and bushings. We've since outsourced the bushings, and the pins, we still do, but we do- Wait, you outsourced something? We outsourced two components. Yeah, three, actually three components. But anyways, a big point is that the UR5 is no longer needed. So it's currently on eBay now. Maybe I'll throw a, a link in the podcast in the notes or notes. something. Yeah. Well, we are publishing on a delay. So certainly it will have sold for a bajillion dollars by the time we get around to releasing this episode. Okay. I, I will be thoroughly surprised if it sells because it's been up for almost a month now and there's like two watchers and 30 views. I'm shocked. I must be doing something wrong. Yeah. Actually, I, I delegated posting it to a guy that may be doing something wrong on eBay. I, I missed the bad old days of eBay when the search was not intelligent enough to return slight misspelling errors. Oh, yeah. And like when I was in college, like you could snipe amazing deals on stuff. I think it was one of my friends was a, I was at a music school. Mm -hmm. One of my friends was a horn player and he used to snipe, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Gemeinhardt, okay. a German trumpet company. Yikes. He would snipe listings for slightly misspelled Gemeindhardt so ads. And then we were, he was an instrument tech. He would buy these horns up, refurbish them, polish them up, clean them up, make sure they function well, do a good job with them, and then turn them around for a lot more than he had bought them for. And the search wasn't intelligent enough to be like, oh, do you mean Gemeindhardt? Right. And give you the correct spelling or return the correct spelling and similar spellings, yes. it would just be like character match has to be exact. If it's a little bit off, you forgot the second T, uh huh, doesn't show up. Right. Yeah. No, and I remember back that in was the a day. Bonanza. They use all kinds of fun stuff to find on eBay back in the early 2000s. Well, I don't use eBay that much these days, but you know, when I was in startup mode, I'd buy a lot of used stuff and I'd, I'd have to search VF2, VF-2, VF-2, Haas VF dash space to, you know, all that stuff to try and find some misspelling. But I guess that's handled now, I suppose. The world has gotten too smart for that. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. 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 So anyway. I've been really enjoying having my new machinist. It's been an exciting first four days for me. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm going to have to re-download a lot of the information I've already downloaded just because you got to gradually build your frame of reference to have a grid to hang all that information on. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we do is so different from the stuff that he used to do that a lot of it doesn't have an easy pocket to slip into to stay retained. Right. But conceptually, like there's nothing I'm going to mention terminology wise related to taps or thread mills or cam or post processors or work holding options or major brands of cutters or holders or whatever that he's going to go, I don't have any idea what that is, and stall out. He's like, oh, yeah, the previous shop he worked at used a lot of Lang stuff. Mm -hmm. We don't use any Lang stuff. 
I don't mind. Like Lang makes great stuff, mm-hmm. but he's able to look at the things that we do and say, hey, on this or that part, that would actually be a great application for a Lang subplate. Like we're looking at taking a T200, putting a Lang plate on it, mounting a rotovice to it, so that if we need to for some other thing, take the rotovice off and prototype with some less dense fixture that gives us better access to slight undersides, undercuts, get a lollipop cutter in under there, any kind of weird thing, we can just take the rotovice off, put something else that we've built on the Lang plate, do the prototyping, and then take it back off, throw the rotovice on, and just go right back to running production parts. Mm-hmm. Yep. And not have to be like, oh, okay, we got to re-indicate this and make sure we find center and probe and confirm it and flip 180 and probe and confirm and none of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what do you recommend as best practices for customers who want to put a rotary and put a rotovice on it if yeah. the rotovice is never going to ever come off? Indicate it, get it dead nuts on, mm-hmm. leave it in place, bequeath it to your grandchildren. It'll mm-hmm. still be on center. Yeah. So same thing. We'll go through the matrix. Safety is number one. What's the safest way? Are we pinching cables? Are we barely clearing a door? What happens when a guy has to move the rotary? I know it's not moving. That's in your hypothetical, but all that stuff. What could go wrong? Uh, quality. Like, are we putting it on a ridiculous riser or a rickety riser or no riser? Or yeah, it's meant for T-slots, but we have this grid table. Is it going to create good quality parts? Simplicity. Yep. So we actually had a customer with an R650 that put two row devices on the table with smart plates. I, I just mm-hmm. remembered that. And we, that's why we started, Carlos and I have been talking about, hey, can we just create a smart plate that is out of the box, ready to go for a brother table? Yeah, it already is. And, but the, yeah, we got to drill and tap because it's a four bolt. Okay, got it. Okay. That being said, they said, hey, we don't want to ever change out the row device, but if we did, how easy is it to take off the rotary unit and the smart plate? Is it quick change? And we say, no, it is not quick change. It is conventional, bolt down, high rigidity. If they did say that, we probably would have used like a couple of pro pallet systems as your base. Like if you've watched any of our shop tours videos, yep. every machine in the shop, for the most part, unless it's not especially dedicated, has at least two pro pallet systems. That is our base. That is our subplate. That's our Lang rail system, whatever you want to do. That's yep. where we do it. And even like our VF2 SS, we mounted our rotary to a pallet that's on a winch that just goes up to the back corner of the machine enclosure and it just hangs there. That was my next question. Okay. Is that an approach you recommend of just hanging stuff in the back corner or was that kind of a corner case that you guys did that in your particular situation works? Nice pun. <laughs> corner case. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's good. Look, I'm all for doing things that people have not done and it was funny there were some like really gnarly nasty comments in that particular video going really that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard boy that's a liability someone's gonna bump their head you're gonna hit it uh chips are gonna and all of it like i want to see is there any value that i i can extract like they're seeing something that we don't see or maybe they just see something that we also see that we've said no, it's a non-issue. One comment cracked me up because it wasn't in the YouTube comments. It was a sales guy that walked in. He's like, man, how close does the, the spindle come to hitting that? And I said, not even close. The spindle goes up and down, not sideways. 
oh yeah, 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 I got it. Yeah, I want shape. That could have easily been a guy that just knocked that out on his keyboard on a Monday morning or Monday evening. So no, table I would goes up and down. Table goes side to side. Yeah, the rotavise hangs right next to the spindle. It could be an inch away. It could be you know a foot away. It, it, they don't. They will never hit. They're on parallel lines. <laughs> so I have not seen anyone else do it. We yep. machined this little three D printed kind of like cable guide. Not 3D printed, I'm sorry, 3D machined, a cable guide that sits on top. It was basically just maybe one, two, three, seven holes. So four holes for the winch, which was like 40 bucks off of McMaster, two yep. holes for this block that acted as the cable guide, and then the hole that the cable actually went through. And then that hung down into the machine enclosure, hooks on an eye bolt. We unlock the propellant system. Drill motor on the winch, it just winches it up and then it just lives there. And then we run other jobs on our, on our, the right-hand propellant base. I think sure everyone I should be understand doing it. Yeah. To what is the winch mounted? Oh, it sits on the sheet metal of the enclosure. Okay, so you're literally just lifting up the machine inside the frame supported by the sheet metal. You're not like bracketed to the ceiling or any kind of external support structure. No, and we got pushback on that too. Oh man, you're going to cave in that enclosure. And I'm like, <laughs> we stand on that to clean it. Haas technicians <laughs> on day one are standing on standing that enclosure. On yeah. So, and it's like this, it, arguably we, we hung our lightest rotary unit, which is, I want to say a hundred pounds, but there's some deflection, but there's a difference between deflection, like yielding and ultimate strength. It's just, so it deflects, it's not bending it. And if it did bend, it would stop at a yield point and no big deal. And if we, need, if we needed to reinforce that corner, we could. Yeah, with 80-20, one piece of 80-20. That spans to your vertical walls for that extra rigidity and done. Yes, but that is so mm. overkill. No, it, it's not needed at all. So what I've been thinking about for our R650, and this is an interesting thing that has come because I hired a new machinist, he brings with him a whole Rolodex. Mm -hmm. In terms of having 15 years of experience as a machinist in this local market, he's done a lot of outsourced work. He's made a lot of different kinds of parts. They've done all kinds of work in weird materials like pre-hardened Inconel and cobalt chrome and other things that I have no experience with at all. Mm -hmm. You tell me the name of that thing and I go, ah, sounds challenging. Mm -hmm. And that's what he cuts for a living, has been cutting for a living for a long time. And it's not that we're going to go around and try to snap up previous customers that he worked for, mm -hmm. but the reality is that when a person who has that experience comes in, it's really easy for me to underappreciate the huge leap forward in global capabilities that that presents for our shop. Yeah. Because it would be a waste for me to take a person who knows all that stuff and say, okay, forget all that. All you're going to do is cut thin gauge thermoform plastics. Mm -hmm. And so- for the first time in my life, I'm considering buying a lathe. Whoa. Exactly. Okay, so lathes are simple in their kinematics and stuff like that. But wait, why? Because the potential to go out and bring in jobs mm -hmm. that provide an additional revenue stream for the shop that are more suitable for long walk away times or even bar fed lights out machining that are in materials that I wouldn't, if somebody came to me and said, Hey, I want you to quote this lathe part in pre-hardened Inconel. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, dude, I don't own a lathe and I've never even touched Inconel. Yeah. I, I, I have nothing. I can't even look at that and understand it. 
But if we have somebody who can do those things, who's been running jobs like that for a long time, not that I'm going to rush out and try to get a bunch of that work right now, but realizing that if that work comes along, I'm not starting from square zero going to YouTube and Googling, how do I machine in Canal? Yeah, sure. I'm talking to a person who's machined thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of Inconel and saying, what would we actually need to take on this job? Mm-hmm. And that is really exciting. Even if we don't take the jobs on, even if we no quote the job at that time, uh-huh. having somebody who has experience working with those materials and those kinds of processes is a resource that I need to continually be touching base on and saying, hey, I don't know anything about this. Tell me about how you did jobs like this. Okay. I can articulate this now. Okay. When you I said, I'm, I'm I, when you not. said, I'm thinking of getting a lathe, I, you could hear it. I had a very strong visceral gut reaction and it's not because I had Taco Bell for lunch. Whoa. I think that Henry Holsters going and Has getting no business getting a lathe. Well, no, let, well, yes, but let me, no, no, you, you should get a lathe if you could bring in like standoff work for, for your holsters or whatever. But I do think like your core, like I'm a big, big believer in core competency. Cause I've considered this over the years. Oh, you know what? I want to go with this machine. It's really expensive. I could go get side work. So it's always running to justify the cost. No half measures. One of our company principles, we don't do half measures. We 100% focus. It's like in one of the podcasts, we talked about net net 30 terms versus credit card. For You're me- are not a bank. We're not a bank. We're a, a cutting edge work holding supplier. And so that's why I had a, a strong reaction against that. Did you get invited to Bilderberg? I didn't. We're not well, a bank. So, so yes, we don't call them half measures. I call them side quests. <laughs> This is like my 80s, 90s video game kid, which is there are two (laughs) different ways of playing the video games that I grew up with. This is called justification, by the way, but keep going. (laughs) No, no, no. But this this is funny. These are two very different modes, which is I've played games that I love in two different modes. And one of them is speed run it. Yeah. Get to the end of the level, get the key, get through the door, you're done. And the other one is, you know what? I'm going to investigate every single crevice, doorway, hallway, I'm going to look for every secret room, every hidden stash. Yeah. I'm going to collect 100% of the coins on this level. I don't care about the time bonus. I want to do this inside and out. Mm-hmm. That is tons and tons of side quests. <laughs> now, it is one thing for me to say, I, ha- I had this discussion just after lunch today with Chris, which was we were looking at a particular idea, a particular thing a kind of thing, not an actual thing we're being asked to quote, just a kind of thing that exists. And I said, if something like this came to us, should we quote it? And he's like, well, in my previous shop, he's like, I didn't have any discretion over that. Like things came in the door and somebody above me would decide whether we would take it or not. And they would quote it. And then I was just handed the prints and told, figure it out. Mm -hmm. And what I said was, okay, that's not how we're going to work here at this shop. You don't have unilateral authority to no quote. But if you say we need to no quote this, I'm going to no quote it because I always want our shop to be finding work over time that is an increasingly better fit for our developing skill set. And for me, I feel like not having lathe ability in the shop 
limits my creativity. I have existing parts that should be made on a lathe that I make on a mill with custom form tools and I'm just doing them all in soft jaws. Yeah. Now, is that the end of the world? No, it works. They're low volume parts. But the reality that there's an entire arena of part designs that are largely cylindrical or cylindrical-ish that I don't even entertain because I go, oh, yeah, that's the lathe part. We're not doing that. I'm going to find some other way to design this thing to not use that. Like if I wanted to make custom hardware for some weird thing we're prototyping, mm-hmm. I don't have a lathe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one thing to say, I have enough pent up ideas and back demand for things that are immediately relevant to the direct space that I'm in to justify a lathe. And if we can manage to rope in a handful of stable, moderate volume jobs that fit on the lathe that I want for the reasons I want it, I have no interest in getting a 14 inch chucker lathe. Mm -hmm. Like, some huge need a sky hook, put a giant chunk in, and then just turn chips out of it for the next four hours. Yeah. That well, lid is useless to me. Well, yeah, no, I think you would have a lot of utility. Just seeing, because I have one of your holsters. I just seen what you make. I, I, I'm not going to say that Henry holsters should not have a lathe. You should, especially if you're actively making turned parts on a mill. You should, and I think the, your company's mature enough where you're at that point. I'm going to try. <laughs> side quest cracks me up. Like a, no, it's perfect. Good. It's like Legend of Zelda. Do no, you no. finish the level or do you want to go into every little hut and talk to every NPC? Totally. And yeah, no. I, every I menu it. and trade all your mushrooms for gold. Here, here, okay, let, I'm going to use your nomenclature, okay? <laughs> in a video game, in an 80s, 90s, 2000 video game, can you also still die in a side quest? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. That's what I think is, that's the truth of the matter. Andrew, I think that if you need to buy a lathe, because I've personally done this, you should get a lathe. And if you mentally need to justify it to yourself, to your employees, to your spouse, whatever, I would say do it, like justify it by, oh, and we'll also get side work. But I think that you're going to find that you're going to put so much on the lathe and it's going to spur on your creativity, certainly because we have better machines. I'm like, oh, we could make this with it. But I don't, I hate the idea of like, going and getting job shop type work because then you're how many holster makers are in america i'm gonna say 20 several thousand several okay of your size of our size probably less than 200 less than 200 okay so then you're going from an ocean with 200 sharks in it yep. Blue to ocean, job ocean. shops with tens of thousands of sharks in it and so in this case what I don't have any interest in doing is uh-huh. opening us up as a general job shop quoting things. Okay, However, I thought you were. No, no, no. So okay. Okay. when Chris, when I say Chris brings a Rolodex, he knows a bunch of people and he's done a bunch of work for a bunch of other companies. If there are opportunities there to take on especially challenging, very well-paid work yeah. that's hard, that he knows how to do and has done before, uh-huh. if we said, hey, Chris, of all the companies you've worked for before, who has the pick of the litter, challenging high value parts that you know you can do that you've done before that would allow us to get the best utility out of a high performance lathe if we put it on the shop floor? Mm-hmm. Mm. That's an interesting question. Not that I'm going to say we'll quote any kind of lathe work that comes in, yeah. but even the ability, I've been asked before by friends of mine who own other machine shops locally, 
to sub out work when they were really, really busy. Like, hey, we need these four components made. One of them is a mill part. Three of them are lathe parts. I'm like, sorry, guys. Yeah. I, I can't do it. You know what? I, I don't gonna, have that. You know what I'm thinking? Let's go back to my analogy of the three-legged stool that the stool should ideally be flat. Yep. So I think you're going to be trading money, which is like a longer-legged resource at, in your company right now. And you're going to be trading time and Chris's energy for it. Because I too employed a guy named Chris that worked at a big corporate job shop that had horrible, horrible culture. In fact, going back to what you're talking about, like the day shift versus the night shift, the day shift would set up a machine, run it, the night shift would come in, the day shift would spend their last 30 minutes of the day taking out all the tools and deleting the program. And Chris would say, why? What happened? The job's not done. He's like, there's no way you're going to get credit for my setup and my production because the Wait, culture was- say that again? The uh, day shift would come in, write a program, set it up, get good parts, get four, six hours of good parts out of it. The last 30 minutes, they would delete the program, take out all the holders, take off the chuck and put it away. My buddy Chris would come in as a second shift and he would have to set up the same job, which still had 400 parts that needed to be made. And the day shift guy would say, I did all the work. You don't get to just come in here and make all the parts off of my work. And so Chris would have to reprogram it, reset it up. Two hours later, he'd be making good parts because they had, and this is that book that I referred to several episodes ago. I think I got the order wrong with the uh, seven habits of highly effective people. Mm -hmm. I, uh, number four was seek win-win scenarios. Yep. This was a win-lose. This was an, a machinist that for him to win in first shift, second shift had to lose. So anyway, that's uh, another side bonus that's thing. Yeah. Catastrophic. That oh, it's, it's gnarly. Old. So then Chris would be machining and this was a big corporate shop, like I said, but they did the Inconel, the titaniums, these exotic unobtainium materials. And what would happen is Chris would come in because he wanted some extra cash. He'd come in for three or four hours after that. And he was just not just, not just physically beat up, but emotionally beat up, motivating, hard to motivate. Motivationally you know? beat up, living in a van down by yes, the river. Yes, exactly. All of the above. And so finally, he was on a one-year contract with them and they said, oh, you know, you get your $2,000 signing bonus if you finish 365 days with us. And he said, I'm throwing in the towel at month 10. And they said, okay, well, it's not prorated. He's like, keep the money, keep the change, you filthy animal. And he came <laughs> and worked for me for, I'd get say, out. six or eight months until he found a, a studio gig. So Chris was saying that like that, all that energy, that, that crushed him. And he is a seasoned through and through 15, 20-year veteran machinist. And he hated working with those in a bad culture shop. They're like, do not scrap this material. Each part is $410 per piece and there's zero extra pieces. So don't scrap it. And it's just the pressure of that. So I know I'm, I'm trying to discourage you, but I well, just want to see you win in, in what you're best at. I don't at. feel discouraged at all. And what I really like is taking an idea at the conceptual stage and steel manning it, making the best case possible and then have some, having somebody push back on it. So mm -hmm. I don't feel I explained myself super well at the beginning. So I think part of this okay. was initially a misunderstanding about yeah, what yeah. my intentions were. I would like to have a very capable lathe that would not be a limit on my creativity in any way. Uh -huh. And if we could subsidize part of the cost of the lathe over time with our pick of the litter work, uh -huh. Then that would ease the burden financially on the company to take on that new capability and would buy me runway time mm -hmm. to design new things to maximize the utility of that machine 
for our own in-house stuff. Yes. And I look at that and go, that's going to be a balancing act of what machine do we want? What control does it have? How much does it cost? And how capable is it? I don't want to buy a machine that's super optimized for that outside work and is de-optimized for me experimenting with things. Mm -hmm. And I also don't want to buy a machine that is super optimized for me experimenting and is horribly unoptimized for actually doing outside work that could help defray its costs. Mm -hmm. And so trying to find a way to balance those things is a discussion we're going to be having over the next few weeks. We don't have anything that's on our plate where we need to get a lathe and make parts immediately. Yeah, We have no commitments, no contracts, no accepted quotes, no nothing of any kind out there that would obligate us to pursue this course. But I have the option to think about it and war game it yeah. and talk through what would this change in our shop if we had it. Okay. Knowing what we that make you, for ourselves. Yeah. Knowing that you have an in-house purpose for a lathe, you should just get it. Uh, okay. So I've gone through the same thing you've gone through. Okay. Let me get this machine. It's a little bit more capability than we need. It's a little, lot more money than we need, than we have. We can always fall back on job shopping. We've found that once you get those capabilities, that energy, that third leg of the stool, you will find that you will not be motivated to go out and use that fallback stuff. You'll be energized and go, man, we could make this part on it. So I would say I rubber stamp new technology coming into Henry Holsters. I would be very hesitant. It would be a very last ditch plan D to do outside work. And, and if we're going to talk about capabilities, you know what I've said on some of my videos, dual spindle, Y axis, live tool lathes, money yep. freaking makers. And then later that, you throw a bar feeder on it. So that was the question. So I was looking at Doosan or Miano. Yep. I don't know Miano. Okay. Miano was at this point, probably my first choice. I've heard great things about Miano from a number of Glade guys who I trust. And Chris has experience on Miano and really likes them. In our area, Ellison is the Doosan dealer. And when I looked at their mills, I was not thrilled with how they handled follow-up. Like they didn't answer all my questions right away necessarily. And then they also pestered me after I told them I decided not to go with them. Mm. And there was a little bit of like, hey guys, too little, too late, now stop. But the idea, like, certainly a simple chucker lathe with a limited number of axes and no live tooling is like a two-wheeled car. You can get there, but yeah. you're going to be dragging the back end the entire time. Yeah. And so if I was going to get a lathe, it makes sense to me to get a lathe that has the ability and the axes and the tool holding to do a lot of challenging stuff. I mm -hmm. want to be able to be creative and not go, oh, I can't design it that way because our lathe can't cut anything in that direction. That's right. Years ago, I had a serious fling with the idea of getting a Swiss. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at, at that time, I was looking at taking on an OEM job for a company that was theoretically going to need several hundred thousand custom fasteners a year. It was an odd part. I had the company that was selling Swisses in my area. I was looking at Citizen Swiss. I had a company that was selling Citizen look at the part, do some demos, give me some sample parts, do a time study, all this stuff. And then eventually the whole project ended up falling through and the OEM didn't need the parts anyway and I never bought the machine. Mm -hmm. What I saw when I looked at Swiss's was they are the complete opposite 
of the workflow that I'm used to where in our shop, everything is posted from cam. Nothing is edited at the machine. Hand editing at machines is not a thing we do. Mm -hmm. And I went to look at a Swiss and the guy was doing a demo and he's literally handwriting code at the machine. G-code. G-code, yeah. Not conversational. Okay. Yeah, handwriting G-code at the machine to do the thing. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. Right. Is that the only way that I can do this? Uh-huh. And I think at the time he recommended a spree if I wanted cam. This was years ago. That sounds right. Yeah. And I realized that, you know what? If I can't handle this machine and the parts that I want to put on it through the same workflow that I already understand, I have to learn a completely new, primarily manual mm-hmm. workflow. I am uninterested. Yeah. But Swisses are so cool. Like the idea that you can move the work forward and back and feed it through and have these really high precision, good surface finish where you're cutting right where the collet's holding the part. Like in principle, I love it. Yeah. Put a big bar feeder on, make absurd quantities of parts, but it was obviously going to be a horrible fit for what I wanted to do and how I like to work. Mm -hmm. And I actually, if I bought a Miano or a Dusan lathe right now, I am not going to become a lathe expert. That ship has sailed. I am not interested. Mm -hmm. I want to have somebody in my shop who is a lathe expert, Mm -hmm. who I can say, hey, I'm 30 minutes into designing this thing. Take a quick look at this. Here's the direction I'm going. Do you see any geometry problems here that are going to make this unmachinable given our current lathe and its capabilities? And him saying, okay, yeah, you can't put that undercut in there, Mm -hmm. but you could do it this way instead. Yeah. Great. Let me not wander all the way down that yellow brick road to find out there's no Emerald City at the end and Mm -hmm. have to come all the way back. Yeah. Tell me right now, no, 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 turn left, not right. You can't go that way. Mm -hmm. I have what I call legacy decisions that I've made in the past that if knowing what I know now, I would not have made them back then. So in 2014, December 2014, I hired John. He's still with me to this day. First high octane rock star, high output type of guy where I had outsourced all turning work. And John came in with, at the time, 15, close to 20 years of lathe experience on a bunch of different lathes, but most recently on Doosan, or they were called Daewoo. Daewoo. Yep. Then it turned into Doosan. And so I said, all right, John, well, since you're here and you're a lathe guy and not really a mill guy, he, like he's fine on the mill now and even like a, a year into his employment with me. But so what can you run right now? He said, Doosan great. And we bought our first two axis Doosan, which is, it's super simple, high accuracy machine. Like I love it, but uh, does that man, make your bushings? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Bushings. And it does the hard turning finishing of the pins. So really it's the only machine that we really trust for holding tenths uh, yep. throughout the day. So John knew the Fanuc Fanuc control and it's such a <laughs> I am shocked at how popular it is because it's such a crappy interface. The UX, the UI, it's embarrassing. And I just wish that it had not historically taken off because it worked. It was, I'm sure it was incredible since the eighties, but they've not iterated enough. Like, and and some would say, Hey, if you programmed a a machine in 85, you can program a machine in 2025. That's probably true. Haas is on the same path. But yeah, that's why I can't just like rubber stamp a deuce on right now. And I, I would even be really? like curious. 
for you to go with a different brand like a Miano. John also worked on Okumas, loved the interface, loved the machine. I know lots of Akuma owners, not just customers, but friends that love them. They're great, high accuracy. I just, I don't think I'll ever be able to get over the, the, the Fanuc control. I, I just, yeah. I, I'm just against it. And we have four machines in house that I pretty much refuse to learn, refuse to touch, refuse to dig into that have Fanuc controls. Oh, and by the way, all four controls, they're about on average, maybe two to three years apart. They all have different UIs. It's crazy. A lot of things are the same, but there's like menus and sub menus or side buttons or touch screen that are different or they skinned it differently. I just go, yeah. It's driving me nuts. So yeah, yeah, that's the only reason I wouldn't go with Dusan for you because you so get to make that first initial non-legacy decision. So let's I, circle back to UI UX. Mm -hmm. This is a thing that we interact with a lot. And obviously I have standardized on C00 control brother machines. And I've deliberately not looked at the newest gen, which is the D00 touchscreen control because so many things are different that our machines are in great shape. They're going to run for a long time. I want the standardization. Yep. But in our shipping software, in our ERP, in a bunch of other places, there are all kinds of opportunities for UI UX improvements, and there are all kinds of fails on the UI UX front mm -hmm. that often leave me wondering, do the people who design these things use them? Use these things. Of course. And often they don't, or if they do, and this is a, this is kind of a funny example, but we are working with our ERP primarily in iPads. And so on the shop floor, everybody has an iPad, it's got their name on it, travels with them for the day. They can hop into the job tracker and find available work for the stations they're at and then log into those operations and clock time and check in parts and all that stuff. But something as simple as when we saw demos of the software, all the job numbers were all four-digit numbers. Like, hey, here's all of our jobs. And what we've done, because we did at the time, we didn't have a lot of customization over what would display in the rest of the menu. Mm -hmm. And so we packed a lot of information into our job numbers, which meant our job numbers were an alphanumeric string that often had 25 or more characters in order to identify the job, job number, client, part skew and version mm -hmm. in the job name. And what that meant was in all kinds of places, like they'd only left enough space for a job number to maybe display eight digits. Mm -hmm. And after that, it was truncated. I'm like, guys, did it not occur to you that somebody might want to put more information in here? And you've built this in such a way that I can only look at this information through a paper towel tube. Yeah. And see part of it at a time. Yeah. And those kinds of things, when we point out, we're like, like you do a demo, it looks great. You plug in our data and it looks like a train wreck. Mm -hmm. And it's not because we're breaking the software. It's because it has these inherent limitations that you guys apparently just never bumped into. Yeah. Those kinds of UI UX things are both an annoyance but an enormous opportunity because companies that get it and do really good UI UX, we've had this conversation before about Signal app. I'm an Apple user. I have an iPhone. 
you're an Android weirdo. But that means in the Signal app, you actually have additional functionality that I would value that I don't have access to. And yet, knowing that, you could not possibly convince me to abandon my iPhone and switch to an Android. There are so many other things about it that I can't stand and don't like, and so many other things that are just burned into my synapses about how to use a phone from having had Apple be the only smartphone I've ever owned my entire adult life. Yeah. That even for marginal gains, the switch would not be worth it for me. Yeah. Well, I'm an Android user because I found it historically, it was synonymous with more control, more customization. I think both systems are almost on par. And so it would make more sense a signal opens up more capabilities to Android users than Apple users. But back to the main point, I think all machine interfaces should look like iPads, should look like a Datron, like Datron, the best control in the industry, hands down, period, no discussion. It's not a contest. Yeah, Um, the control for the Neo is amazing. Yeah, and that's how it should work. I have no use for a Datron, but I just want one in the shop because I do think that if we had it and it was deemed a toy, I think we would find ways to make more of our parts on it. And that's how I could personally justify it. And that's why that's the same mindset that I'm telling you that you should get a lathe because you're going to get the capability and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, think of all the things we could make with this. I I have that thought 10 times a day. Think of all the things we could make with this. (laughs) And my wife's like, chill, chill, (laughs) calm down. You don't need a bulldozer. I'm like, but but (laughs) think. Actually, you know how badly I want a skid steer, but go ahead, go finish your point. So the the thing that I really want is a Japanese mini truck. Okay. I really want a Japanese mini truck. I've looked at a few, a friend of mine just got one. Give me a year. What year? Like late eighties, early nineties. Okay, perfect. And and they're all imports. A lot of them are right-hand drive. They're manual transmission, four-wheel drive, Yes. little lightweight trucks. And like as a utility vehicle, I don't own a pickup. And if I have to move things around, like you can put a trailer hitch on and, and haul a lightweight trailer. They're not for heavy hauling. Yeah. But for so much stuff that people do with pickup trucks, yeah. like you don't need a Ford F-250. Mm-hmm. You just need a bed you can drop things in and not wreck the upholstery in the backseat of your wife's car. That's right. Like that's all you need. Yeah. And the whole Japanese mini truck, like little tiny pickup truck. I look at that and go, you can buy one of those for less than 10K. They're so cheap oh, and they look so fun and they can almost do highway speeds. Like <laughs> I could get from work to home and home to work in a Japanese mini truck with a bunch of, we've, we've actually jokingly talked about it actually more seriously recently. Like we often have to do a mail run and that usually involves one of us just jamming a bunch of mailbags in the backseat of like a Honda Civic and driving into the town. Yeah. But we could have our own little dedicated Henry Holster's mail truck that's got <laughs> that's raised awesome. sides. We just dump all the bags and throw a tarp over it and go tootling in the town, which is five minutes away. Right. And drive them up to the post office and just throw them on their loading dock. Yeah. And I thought that was funny. And then like last weekend, our town had their autumn festival town parade and somebody drove a mini truck dressed up with little flags and things on it in the parade. And I saw that. I'm like, oh, man. Man. There should be a Henry Holster's mini truck in this little town parade next year. We should buy a white mini truck. We should sand it and prime it and paint it all orange and then put it in the parade and have a little Henry Holster's mini truck. See, we must have the same weakness because I feel like useless, <laughs> obscure, unique vehicles 
because they have the price points that they're at. Like I would own a hundred of them. Like I want like a Ford that's tiny. It's, I think it's called a transit or an e-transit. It's like smaller than a USPS mail truck, but I'm like, yeah, I want to do oh, something. Yeah. Those with are that. so cool. They're tiny. Yes. Yeah. Like I want to, I want to put just a mountain bike back there or do mm-hmm. something. It's completely impractical. Like that. Oh, we could put a pallet back there and we could drive around to our vendors. Oh, wait a minute. No, we don't ha- engage in the waste of transportation. Let them deliver it. That type of thing. But Oh man, a mini truck. There used to be a big mini truck club here in Simi Valley, but they got shut down. And that was in the nineties too. They got shut down. Was it over emissions? No, what, what it was is, okay. So actually, if you look at our address, we're on Cochran street, like Johnny Cochran, it didn't always go through. It would dead end. And on Sunday nights, all the mini truckers in the area would go to the dead end of Cochran street. And drag race. And they would do stupid stuff. They would even cone off the street. My dad had a business, which was actually two doors down. And he would pull in the mini truckers would say, Hey man, this street is shut down. My dad would have words for him. Eighties approach boomer type thing. I have a business here. Get the F out of my way. You know? Oh, sorry. Sorry. We didn't know you all. Hey bro, just chill next time. Just tell us you got a business. We'll let you through. But then when they opened up Cochrane street, because they opened a home Depot and a Walmart and a Costco. Then it wasn't like this long quarter mile straight section, the only straight section in Simi Valley. It was a through street. And then this mini truck club kind of got dispersed and who knows, I think they went to the San Fernando Valley, which is where they should stay by the way. But yeah, Simi Valley, <laughs> it, it was like- Half of them went to prison and the yes. rest went to San Fernando Valley. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or the other way around. Yeah, but oh, no, man. Uh, mini trucks. My best friend growing up his first, yeah, little Toyota. Gosh, it was so fun. It was a chick magnet back in the late nineties, early two thousands, but you know, it lots of fun memories with his little mini I'm truck. not yeah, I'm not sure what in, in twenty twenty three, I'm not sure what kind of chicks a Japanese mini truck would mm. magnet, but question mark. That's um, sell. Yeah. But yeah, I'm seriously thinking about a lathe. I'm gonna be doing a little more legwork to look at models and figure out specs. So I'll probably send you a few questions yeah. via text and bug you. Can, can, can you promise me and maybe our audience that you won't buy anything until the next podcast? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Not okay. a question. Okay. There's, there is zero chance that between now and next episode, I'm buying a lathe. Great. All right. But I will probably, hopefully, have it narrowed down to a couple different models yes. in terms of size, axes, tooling options, and say, hey, I'm thinking about this, this, or this. And you'll, ah, that one's kind of a little bit excessive. You don't yeah. need all those bells and whistles. Or, you know what? That one is missing one major thing, one quality of life thing that you're really going to want. So, okay. We'll talk about lathes and chucks next time. Sounds good. I'll see you, Andrew. Thanks, Jay. Bye.